question, is there enough evidence to convict you? There is now. There is now. Please turn in your Bibles. Back a little bit, that's better. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. We'll be ending Luke 15 today, looking at just the last few verses. Luke chapter 15, starting at verse 25. And there went a great multitude with him, and he turned and spoke to them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just ask now that you would speak to us. Open our hearts and minds. Teach us, we pray, from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. There was a multitude, multitudes with him. And he turned and said to, him, said to them, there was a multitude. Hey, isn't it nice when you preach? Sorry, Luke 14, did I say 15? Said 15, meant Luke 14. That's because Luke 15 is right next to it. Luke 14, verse 25. Luke 14, 25, and there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them. It's nice when you preach if there's great multitudes. It's really nice. Sometimes you get them, sometimes you don't. But it's good. But there's a problem about multitudes. They tend to be mixed. For in Exodus chapter 12, verse, 20, verse 38, it said that when God's people were called out of Egypt, that there went with them a great mixed multitude. These were people who had seen the power of God revealed in the, in the day of the Passover and indeed must have partaken of the Passover themselves to be delivered, yet they weren't really part of God's people. And in Luke we find that the miracles that Jesus has done and the, the preaching that he's done, the teaching that he's done <coughs> and the message he has, called, has sent to these people saying come has drawn a great multitude but the problem with this multitude is that they were not really disciples. Now the question of whether they were actually ever saved or not, I'm going to leave to another preacher in another time. But what I'm looking at is here people who have heard God's word, who have responded to it, and they are not yet disciples. Because a disciple is more than just a follower. A disciple is more than just a hearer. The very word disciple has in its, in its root the same root word as discipline. Yeah. Disciple and discipline have the same origin. A disciple is one who is being taught, who is being disciplined, who is being instructed and who is responding to it. And the question is, 
Are we really being disciples? We may be Christians, but are we being disciples? Are we responding to the discipline? Are we listening? Are we changing the way we do things because of what we're learning? And Jesus begins to give this teaching here. It's interesting that the, the parable of the Great Supper, which comes before this, talks about how God calls so many. And now like a a harvest has been called and gathered in, there's a bit of winnowing going on. And we will find, in fact, in another passage that after this, some people stop following. So, verse 25, There went a great multitude with him, and he turned and said unto them, If any man come to me, and hate not his father and his mother, his wife his, and children and his brethren and his sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Wow. That's tough. He is calling on us to turn our backs on everything if we want to truly be his disciple. Have a look over in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Well, verse, verse, starting at verse 7. Philippians 3, 7. The Apostle Paul says, But what, the, what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. All these things, Paul says, I count but dung. Manure. You can add any other word you want in there. But that's what he's saying. That's what I count everything else in order to win the excellency of Christ. Walking away, turning your back on all these things. Now, does God call us to give up all these things? Father and mother and wife and sisters and brethren, our own life? Not always. But he does call us to be willing to give up all these things. For remember, Abraham was called of God to take his son, his only son whom he loved, and sacrifice him. Now right at the end, God said, no, stop. But he was called to be willing to do this. What are we willing to give up? Now, to be willing to give up something means more than just, you know, the, the, it, we're not talking about something, you know, like the Catholic Church does during Lent, 40 days before Easter, that you say, oh, well, I'm going to give up this or I'm going to give up that. Nor are we so much talking about uh, you know, a New Year's resolution, you know, uh, uh, this year I'm, I'm, 
I'm going to stop watching soapies and I'm going to lose 10 kilos, you know? It's not that sort of resolution we're talking about here. If you're really talking about what this is like, the closest thing you can find in the world today to what he is talking about here, you would probably find at an AA meeting. It's when someone says, I will never do that again. I will never touch that stuff again. And turns their back on it for the sake of a better life. That's what we're talking about here. It's that sort of turning their back on something. Being willing to never go there again if that's what's necessary. And in verse 27 he says, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now no doubt a lot of the people listening there thought, Oh yes, that's a, a, a figurative thing he's doing. That's a, a figure of speech to bear your cross and come after him. Well, for quite a few of those disciples it was a very literal meaning that they indeed would carry their cross and be crucified like their master was. We willing to do these sorts of things? We look at the missionaries who indeed turn their back on their families and their friends and their own society and go to another country and we say, wow, that's, that's so wonderful. Are we willing? Are we willing to do what God calls us to do, to be his disciple? Or as, as Rolly Smith put it one time, are we even willing to be made willing to do it? Will we start there? Will we say, Lord, I don't know if I'm willing to do this, but I'll tell you, I'm willing to be made willing to do it. There's a cost involved to being a disciple. Verse 28, he says, For which of you intending to build a tower... Sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it. Now we have people who in this congregation were involved in the building industry. And I suggest that you could put it to these people and say to them, if I came to you and said, well I have the land and I have enough money for the foundations, will you start building my house? What are they going to say? Not a chance. Why? Because you haven't sat down and counted the cost whether you can finish this project or not. Now, my, where I grew up, it's very hilly. Those of you who know Morwell know it's a very hilly spot. And right on the top of one of those hills, when I was growing up as a young fella, there was a sign and it said... This area reserved for the site of the future working men's club. Alright? Now, there are a few clubs in, in Morwell, and one of them, the Italian club, serves a very nice lunch. I heartily recommend it to you. So, the, the clubs in Morwell do quite good business. It's not a bad, bad thing to open. 
But I realised as I was going past there <coughs> that nothing was happening. That there were a few bits of foundation and some bits of framework there, but month after month and year after year, nothing more was happening. And I said to my mother, Mum, what's going on here? It's been years and years that sign's been up there. Now the, the sign's starting to get all weathered and looking all tacky and the, the wood's gone all grey and warped and everything. What's going on? And she said, well, there was some financial mismanagement there and they've run out of money. You go there now, there's not even the sign. The land was sold and there's now been houses built on it. Why? Because they started and were not able to finish. They didn't sit down and count the cost. And exactly what the Lord says here in verse 29, lest happily after he hath laid the foundation, he is he is not able to begin it, not able to finish it, and all that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build but was not able to finish. The working men's club is a running joke in Morwell. When are you going to deliver me car? Uh, yeah, a couple of days, yeah, about the same time the working men's club gets finished. All men begin to mock them. It's a joke now. Why? Because they didn't sit down and count the cost. They started and were not able to finish. When we're called to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, have we sat down and counted the cost? Because really what he's saying here, better not to start. Better not to declare that I will follow Jesus anywhere and fail. Better not to say it than to start without counting the cost and fail and put his name and your name into reproach. Then he says, verse 31, Or what king, going to make war against another king, sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000. <coughs> now this is interesting because notice the king doing the consulting, doing the working out, has got 10,000 men. He has an enemy approaching him with 20,000. He is outnumbered two to one. But you know, it is possible. It is possible to meet 20,000 with 10,000 and win. But it requires several things. Number one, it requires planning. It is a case where the king must sit down and plan his strategy. He must consult. 
He must look carefully at what he's doing and figure out, is it possible? Secondly, it requires that the 10,000 be totally committed. There can be no reserves. One of the American Civil War generals, Nathan Bedford Forrest, was renowned for saying that if you get there firstest with the mostest, you usually win. But he was never had the most men. But he never had any reserves. He always threw every man he had into the first assault and won considerable victories for his side before he was defeated. You see, he knew he could beat 20,000 with 10,000 because the 10,000 were committed and ready and he had planned and organised and it could be done. So, if we're going to be a disciple of Christ, have we not just sit down and counted the cost, but have we planned it? Are we committed? Will there be no reserves? Will we be willing to commit everything we have to this campaign or will we hold back, hang back and lose what it is? Or else while he is yet a great way off, he's, he sendeth an ambassadors, ambassador, 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 yeah, and desires conditions of peace. Better not to start the battle than to fight it half-heartedly. Wow. Now this is not what you quite often get told when you're, when, when, when you're being taught about discipleship. So often Christians get, young Christians get told, just plunge right in there and God will provide. But here the Lord is saying, count the cost. Get serious about this. Look at it like a campaign and decide whether you're willing to start. The third thing he comments on here is salt. The question of the savourless salt. He says salt is good, but if the salt has lost its savour, Wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. Savourless salt. Can you get salt that isn't salty? There is one way that you can get salt that isn't salty. And it goes like this. In areas where the the feed is what's called standing dry feed. That is, it's grass that's old and it's still standing up there. It is common to put out salt licks for the cattle. Now this would have been in some areas of Palestine, they would have done this. They put out salt licks because the, the feed, while it supplies most of the nutrients, because it's been rained on, a lot of the minerals have been washed out. And so they, they put out the salt licks for the animals to provide the minerals. Now you're not going to buy A-grade salt for this. So what you do, the people would buy, if you like, B-grade salt. And we're talking about the salt that would have come up from the Dead Sea, 
but it was the stuff on the shoreline it was all muddy and dirty and mixed up with rubbish and and you get it cheap but the animals don't care they'll lick away at it and it's all full of you know minerals and all that sort of stuff for them so it's good for them and they put it there and the cattle will lick this stuff and if you've ever seen cattle with salt they just love it they'll lick away at it and they'll lick the whole thing completely gone but there's only one problem with this muddy dried clay salt if it gets rained on you see if it gets rained on the salt gets washed out from the surface and all you've got there is this muddy clay crust it's useless because the animals won't lick it because there's no salt on the outside so it's no good to them you can't as it says even toss it in the dunghill because as it breaks down the salt that's left will permeate your manure and ruin that it's not good for the, the animal, it's not good for the manure. The only place it's fit to be put is on the road where it'll get trodden down. In fact, in Matthew, in this parallel passage, he says men cast it out and tread it underfoot. The only thing you do with this stuff is put it on the road because there it kills the weeds. It's useless. And the thing is, when you get a lump of this material, you can't re-salt it. Savorless salt cannot be re-salted. You can't put more salt back in it. Doesn't work that way. He says salt is good, but if the salt's lost its savour, if the salt has lost its saltiness, how do you put the salt back in? You can't. Now we are called to be the salt of the world. Salt has lots of uses. Lots and lots of uses. But it has two uses. Main, use, main things that salt does. One, salt is a preservative. Now remember, salt does not cure decay it prevents it you cannot get rotten meat and pack it in salt and hope it'll turn good doesn't happen but if you do pack good meat in salt it will preserve it we are called to be the salt of the world we're not called to cure it we're called to preserve it to hold back the decay for as long as we can the second thing that salt does is it makes you thirsty. And you think, well, yeah. But you know, that's a good thing. Yeah, that's a good thing. I have actually seen people who, because of the, what, the work they were doing and the conditions they were in, their bodies became depleted from salt. They, 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 they ran out of salt in their body. And they became tired, listless, didn't eat, didn't drink. And it was amazing the effect of a little sprinkle of salt on some food made to their bodies. They, 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 they uh, became bright and lively, they became thirsty and hungry and, and came back to life again. You see, it makes people desire food and drink. 
That's the other thing we're to do as being the salt of the world, is to make people to desire the water of life. But brethren, if the salt has lost its savour, it's useless. If we as Christians are not the salt of the world, then we're useless. We're good neither for the, the land nor even fit for the dunghill. We're fit only to be cast out and trodden underfoot. This is serious stuff that's happening here. And it comes down to this question, counting the cost. Counting the cost of what we're doing. If we're building a tower, we count the cost. If we're going to war, we count the cost. If we're buying salt, we count the cost. Do we count the cost of being a disciple of Christ? So what's it going to cost? What is it going to cost you to be a disciple? Now we talk, okay, I've been talking about counting the cost, so what's it going to cost? They say an economist is somebody who knows the cost of everything but the value of nothing. What's it cost? To be a disciple of Christ. I can tell you the first thing it's going to cost. It's going to cost you your pride. It's going to cost you your pride to be a disciple. Look over in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 23. Romans 3, 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath sent forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then it is excluded by what law of works nay but by the law of faith where is boasting it is excluded if you're going to be a disciple of Christ it will cost you your pride there is no room for boasting as a disciple of Christ there are some people who still think, they, they, they look at themselves and they look around themselves and they say, yep, when God got me, he got a real bargain. That is still the attitude that some Christians have. But Paul says, no, where is boasting? It's excluded. It will, if you want to be a true disciple of Christ, it will cost you your pride. One of the uh, interesting quotes from, from Martin Luther is that he said he, he feared his own sinful heart more than the Pope and all his cardinals. There's no pride there. It's the realisation that without Christ we are nothing. And to be a disciple of Christ means to depend on him and to have no pride in what we do. And to realise that it's all him and not of us.
what else will it cost? It'll cost you your ambitions. You know, we sing that song, I'll go where he leads me and I'll do his least command. That's the banner of the cross. You know that, that song? We say, I'll cross the world for Jesus, but we won't even cross the street to talk to someone about Christ. A servant, we say. A disciple. Are we really disciples? Are we really servants? Or have our own ambitions taken over? And are we still looking at, at, at doing the things the way we want to? I'll, I'll, what does Paul say about this? Acts 26. Acts 26, verse 13. Paul's giving his defence before Agrippa. And this is the description of, of his conversion. Acts 26, 13. At midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven, above the brightness of the sun, shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of the things in which I shall appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom I now send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance amongst them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. That sound pretty much like the call that any Christian's got? To be a minister and a witness of the things you've seen and to be a, a light to the Gentiles and the people that are around you to turn them from darkness to light. In verse 9 he says, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. Well, have we not been given a heavenly vision and a call to, to reach the world for Christ, but are we being disobedient to the heavenly vision? Or are we putting our own importance and our own careers and our own things in front of what God wants us to do? It'll cost you your ambitions. Now it may be that God will lead you to the delight of your heart. And in fact, he probably will. But you've got to be willing to give up everything else first before he can lead you. Now, I've worked with uh, animals a few times and I've led horses. You know how you, uh, you know how you, uh, a fellow told me, you know how you get a mule to back up? So as you go around the front of the mule and you get hold of the bridle and you tug it forward and the thing will take a step backwards. You tug it forward and it'll take another step. He says you can back that mule as far as you want. Just by tugging forward at the bridle, it'll just keep backing up. Are we like that sometimes? When God wants us to back up, does he just have to tug us forward and we'll just back away from whatever it is he wants us to do? Are we disobedient to the heavenly vision? 
There's a third thing it'll cost. It'll cost you your pride. It'll cost you your ambitions. It'll cost you your sin. If you want to be a servant of Christ, it's going to cost you your sin. Acts chapter six, uh, Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 12 to 21. It says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye now have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that was delivered unto you, being made then free from sin, became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. As ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness, to iniquity, unto iniquity, now yield your members' servants of righteousness unto holiness. It'll cost you your sin. You might think, well, yeah, that's, that's something I can do without. People like to hang on to their sin. It's a very friendly thing, sin. Been around a while. It's very comforting. You know, in the Old Testament, there's the story of how a servant after seven years, can go free. But they can elect to stay with their master. And they're told, you can go free now. And they say, I love my master and I will not go free. And most people think of that as a wonderful picture of us choosing to stay with Christ. But you know, it's also a picture of people who, when they are offered freedom in Christ look at their sin and say, I love my master and I will not go free and elect and choose to stay with their sin instead. There's a story which if I get a little African with it, I trust you'll forgive me. There was a hunter once who went out and found a baby leopard. A little baby leopard cub. Just a tiny little thing. Looked so sad and forlorn that he brought it home. And the chief, Nkuzi, said to him, It's a leopard cub. Kill it now. And he said, No, I won't. I'll feed it on mealies and porridge and milk. And it'll be safe and won't hurt anybody. And so he kept the leopard as a pet and he fed it and never t it never tasted meat. And so it grew and it played with his children. 
And it was a pet around the, ha around the hut in the village. And it chased the children and played with them and never hurt anybody and never touched a thing. For he fed it only on porridge and milk. And the chief came to him and said, The little leopard has become a big leopard and big leopards kill. Spear it now while you have the chance. And the man said, No, it has hurt nobody. It has harmed nothing. My children sleep with it. They play with it. It is safe. Then one day, the hunter's little girl fell over and scratched her arm. And the leopard who she was playing with came up and seeing her upset, licked her arm. And for the first time in its life, it tasted blood. And those soft, gentle eyes that had been playing with the child turned hard and angry and savage. And it turned and attacked his daughter. Hearing her screams, the mother ran out from the hut and tried to get the leopard off, but it was too big and it turned and then attacked her. With all this commotion, the hunter came and tried to protect his family from the leopard. And it turned and attacked him also and began to tear him. And it was not until the chief with Asagai and Nobkeri came and fought the leopard that it was finally dispatched. And as the chief looked down at the bodies of this family, he said, did I not tell him that little leopards become big leopards and big leopards kill? Little sins become big sins and big sins kill. What do they kill? They kill your relationship with Christ. They'll kill your relationship with your family and they'll kill your testimony as a Christian. Count the cost. What are you prepared to give up to be a disciple? Will you give up your pride? Will you give up your ambitions? Will you give up your sin for the service of Christ? There was a, a young girl who heard an old man preach. And he preached on the need for a sanctified life. And the blessings there were in being a committed Christian. She came up to him afterwards and she said, Oh, I'd give the world to be able to speak like that. And he said, child, it's exactly what it'll cost you. Sit down, count the cost. Will you be a disciple of Christ? Or will you fail along the way where all men begin to mock and say, this person began to build, but was not able to finish? Thank you.